0: Welcome to Punch Path. This is your host, Jared Bluenfeld.
1: No This is your host, Sarah Emanzata.
2: Overseas, one of the world's most popular tourist destinations is dealing with near-record flooding. Large areas of Venice, Italy, were swamped by the second-highest tide ever recorded in the city. You know, this city is known for its canals and those gondolas. The historic St. Mark's Square was flooded. The high water mark hit more than six feet. Wow. And more than 85 percent of Venice was flooded. The mayor blamed climate change and declared a state of emergency.
0: So, Sarah, that was, that's pretty depressing to hear about what's happening in Venice, but the truth of the matter is it's actually happening everywhere, and that's what this week's episode is about, not just about king tides, but about your favorite subject.
1: Sea level rise.
0: So why why is it something that's such a big focus of yours?
1: Well, I learned about sea level rise and climate change in general when I was a freshman in college, and honestly it blew my mind to think about such a – crazy, unprecedented change uh, happening to the beaches and the places that I loved and cared about. And I couldn't believe that when I would go to parties, people weren't talking about it. It seemed to me... Do
0: you want to go to parties where people are talking about (laughs) sea level rise? Oh, yeah. Past the canopy, Jesus, sea level rise is going to be bad.
1: It was more like uh, past the 40 of Natty Light, sea level rise is really bad. But people didn't want to talk about it, and they still don't 18 years later.
0: So Sarah sits on the California Coastal Commission, which is the entity that basically determines coastal uses along the entire 1,100 miles. So Sarah, who are we going to be talking to this week?
1: We are going to be meeting up with my friend, Jennifer Calt, who is the Humboldt Baykeeper, Suzanne Mosier, who is a climate change adaptation expert, including the psychological dimensions, and Violet Sa'ena, who is the Climate Resilient Communities Director with Actera.
0: You wanted to do this episode for a long time, and you said we got to wait till there's like a mini King Tide. So we're going to start with Jen, uh, who's a biologist who's up in Humboldt Bay. We're going to go out to Pacifica and it uh, should be fun.
1: Yeah. And Pacifica is one of the many areas in California that is already experiencing flooding, erosion, and some of the other impacts of sea level rise. And so it's super dramatic during the King Tide events. You can see water splashing over the pier. Um, You can see areas of the the sidewalk flooding, and it really gives a good picture of what we can expect um, with future sea level rise as well as uh, storm events currently.
0: So Sarah, you also helped found the King Tides Initiative in California. I know that it had been created in Australia and other places. It's really cool. Tell us before we meet Jen, your old buddy, what the King Tide Initiative is.
1: Yeah, so it was something that was already happening here in the Bay Area, but we wanted to make it a statewide initiative. And it's really just an opportunity for people to go down to their shoreline or coastal area, check out their favorite beach or park, or even the road or bike path that they use to commute and to see how it looks during the highest tide of the year, or the king tide. And when they do that, it really sparks a conversation in the family, in the community, and ultimately among decision makers about what the places they love are gonna look like with future sea level rise.
0: Okay, let's go and meet Jen. Sarah, Jen, and I are stuck in my Chevy Bolt, The the windows are now misting up. The sea is smashing against us. It's a king tide in Pacifica. Like We were going to be outside doing this, but right. it's raining, Right. which is a good thing. It hasn't rained in a long time. Mm. Sarah, so inter- introduce your friend Jen.
1: My friend Jen. Um,
0: How did you meet?
1: We met because she was one of my many bosses at the California Coastkeeper Alliance when she served on the board of directors as a humble baykeeper. Are
0: you still doing that, Jen?
2: Yes, I am. What we do is anything having to do with protecting Humboldt Bay. So we're the watchdogs on the bay and around the bay. Uh, we watchdog development to make sure that it's protective of the bay. And uh, we sue polluters sometimes and everything in between. We get, we get a lot of people out on the water, too, to show them how beautiful Humboldt Bay is because a lot of people don't have access to boats.
0: Are you based in Eureka?
2: I'm based in Arcata. The organization has an office in Arcata. The Humboldt Bay area has a lot of industrial pollution that's been left over from the legacy of the timber industry. We also have the first commercially licensed nuclear power plant in the United States right on Humboldt Bay.
0: Sarah, do you love Humboldt Bay? It's one of my favorite places.
1: I do love Humboldt Bay, and I've gone out with Jen on kayaks uh, many times as well as walked around Humboldt Bay with her dog.
0: So one of the things you notice about the Bay, it really is separated by the Pacific very tenuously.
2: Right. There's a spit. It's called the North Spit. And it's basically a narrow spit of sand that separates all of North Bay and also all of South Bay. And then there's an entrance channel where the um, ships come into um, Eureka. That's how we get all of our fuel. It's barged in from the San Francisco Bay Area and stored in massive tanks right on the bay that were built in the 1940s. The bay itself is very shallow. It's a, the second largest estuary in California. Um, it's, it's pretty large, but about a third of it was diked off in the 19th century to create farmland. A lot of that area is very low lying and that's where a lot of the communities were built.
0: Today we have a king tide. It, it looks like most of the beach has gone in front of us. How are you coping or how are you thinking about activating community and engaging people through sea level rise?
2: The Humboldt Bay area is really ground zero for sea level rise in California. And that is because the sea level is rising at twice the rate as the state average because the ground beneath the bay is sinking at the same rate as sea levels rising due to tectonic activity. And so there's so much tectonic activity that the ground is sinking, sea is rising, and we have double the the sea level rise.
0: Wow, I never knew that that's incredible. What is a king tide?
2: A king tide is the um, extreme high tides of the year. So they typically occur in the winter Uh, November, December, January, Um, and they happen um, at either during the new and the full or the full moon when the gravitational pull of the Sun and the Moon are more extreme. Today the the storm event that's predicted for Humboldt Bay is um, is thought to be the biggest storm of the past decade and it's arriving right at the king tide. Uh, so there's going to be lots of rain, lots of wind, and the wind pushes the water up onto the land, um, depending on which direction the wind's coming from. But also the low pressure really makes a huge difference. Low atmospheric pressure, um, which the National Weather Service has predicted will set a record today in Humboldt, in the Humboldt Bay area, uh, makes the water take up more space. And the, the king tides are then higher during low pressure storm events.
1: So, Jen, uh, given the extreme sea level rise and flooding that Humboldt is experiencing and is expected to experience, uh, you know, what does that look and feel like for the people that live there? How does that affect the infrastructure, the roads, the wastewater treatment plants, um, and also the number of industrial facilities that line the bay?
2: A lot of that that you just listed off is all very low lying. Some of it is in these former bay tidelands behind all these earthen dikes that many of which have not been maintained. They're over 100 years old. Sea level was 18 inches lower when they were built. So some of these are at risk right now um, during king tides and, and especially when there's a big rain event. There's just a lot more
0: water on the landscape. Wait, wait, so 18 inches. So that's both because of the sea levels going up and it's sinking. That 18 inches sounds like a lot.
2: It's a lot. So we have, um, you know, wastewater treatment plants, we have contaminated former lumber mills that are, many of which were built on wetland Fill. Highway 101 um, travels along Humboldt Bay between Eureka and Arcata, and it is behind an old railroad dike that is no longer maintained. Behind Highway 101, there's a lot of sewer lines, water lines, the natural gas line. All kinds of really important public infrastructure is in these low-lying areas that were once um, tidal mudflats and will become again tidal mudflats as the bay reclaims its former footprint.
0: So as someone that cares about the bay um, and whose life and job is focused on the bay, like... Is this a new thing that you're suddenly realizing, like, wow, this is a slow-moving disaster that's coming towards us, and we need to act, and, like, what does action even look like or mean, given any of those scenarios you just painted?
2: It's slow-moving, but it's not as slow as we used to think. Every time new projections come out, it's happening faster and faster. For example, the Arcata wastewater Treatment Facility is projected to be um, flooded on a monthly basis— by the year 2040. So that's only in 20 years. So what we need to be doing is planning for this. It's it's going to be a catastrophe if we don't plan for it. And a lot of these big infrastructure projects take 10 or 20 years to plan for, and there's not enough money for any of, any of it anymore. So we need to be planning to relocate things like the Arcata wastewater Treatment Facility, their old facilities, Uh, that were not built with rising sea level in mind. In a lot of areas, people that are living close to the coast can make an individual decision to move. You know, sometimes those people, you know, they, they may think to themselves, well, my children aren't going to inherit this property. I should just sell it now and buy something that I will be able to pass on to my children. Those are the kind of conversations people are starting to have.
0: The fact that people are having conversations with their kids and spouses about moving because of sea level rise makes it pretty real quickly.
1: Our state is in an interesting position because we have so many people thinking about relocating from wildfires, but we also have a whole other group of people that are trying to grapple with sea level rise and flooding. And so it puts our state um, basically in flux. People don't know where they can be safe and stable and um, create a future that is safe for their children. There's a
2: lot of policies being discussed, and there's a lot of resistance. There's a lot of resistance from particularly um, the real estate and development communities because um, they see this as a threat to property values. Because it's so foggy on the coast, a lot of the wealthier people live inland, and so the people who are going to really be disproportionately impacted by the loss of property values are um typically lower income households that are living in these very low lying areas already you can't just pick up and go buy a new house especially if it's been very publicized that your community
0: is at risk of sea level rise so humboldt state is up near you right and are you getting kids involved like students are super activated uh, is this like a, is there a way of thinking about engaging colleges and students in the discussion about sea level rise?
2: Definitely a few professors at Humboldt State and I started a sea level rise initiative at Humboldt State. There have been uh, quite a few classes that do um, semester-long projects on sea level rise. Instead of doing a project and then stick it in the drawer, building upon past projects. So getting students involved in a way that they're getting class credit for it.
0: I spent a lot of time in the last few months on how to help communities during wildfires, like in real time. How are we thinking about that kind of planning and preparation as it relates to sea level rise.
2: The National Weather Service, um, based in Eureka, has really been a big champion of tsunami evacuation planning, and so just in the last 10 years or so, there have been um, huge strides made. Development in these low-lying areas has to come with a tsunami evacuation plan, and so people are much more informed about what to do if there is a tsunami. The posting of the signs around the area has really increased awareness. People think, if I'm at work and my kid's at the daycare and I have to go through two separate tsunami zones to get to them, what do I do? Well, you can't do it. You can't, you can't get in your car and drive in many cases. You have to walk to a safe area.
0: That's terrifying that you might be trapped between different tsunami zones. In order to get your kids, that certainly makes you think about this in a different way.
2: Mm-hmm. It is it is terrifying and it, it makes people think about where their kids are going to daycare or school, you know, because um, there are so many low-lying areas.
0: Does Humboldt, do you kind of feel forgotten up there in the north coast?
2: Definitely, definitely. A lot of people who are from metropolitan areas in California have never been to Humboldt. And one of the things we struggle with quite a bit is people who are based in San Francisco, L.A., Sacramento, whether they are scientists, researchers, funders, government agency officials, who don't understand the, the vast scientific expertise that we have in the Humboldt Bay area. And then we also struggle with uh, people mistakenly thinking it's some sort of pristine place because it doesn't look like Los Angeles or Long Beach. Um, But we have, you know, really what I think of as a rust belt that's even older than the Midwestern rust belt because a lot of these lumber mills were built 100 years ago and they're sitting there dilapidated and contaminated.
0: Do you ever have sea level rise nightmares? Like, do you wake up, like, sweating, like, oh, my God, it's already 2045 and we're deep underwater?
2: I do have nightmares about it. I mean, I... What I'm really most afraid of is that we're not going to be able to, to plan quickly enough because we're so set in our ways. We're so wedded to this is my little postage stamp of the world and I'm not leaving it. You know, you hear after all these disasters like Hurricane Sandy, we're New Jersey strong and we're going to rebuild and I just don't think that we're going to ever win our fight with Mother Nature. I think Mother Nature is always going to have the last word.
0: Thanks so much, Sarah, for introducing me to Jen. She's awesome. And um, even though we were stuck in a car, um, <laughs> we learned a lot and uh, I really appreciate it. So next up is someone that you've been really interested in and following for a long time, Suzanne Moser. Tell me about her.
1: Yeah. So her research is really interesting because it focuses on the concept of hope, which is not something, quite frankly, that environmentalists have been very good at cultivating and especially on sea level rise
0: hope is really needed so anyone that can bring hope to the dialogue is, is definitely worth us talking to
1: i start by asking suzanne Mosier, where does she see hope in the work that communities are doing to address sea level
3: rise you know it's actually really challenging work to do that um There are lots of folks in local communities, whether that's planners or extension agents or outreach specialists, who are sort of these go-betweens between the science on the one hand and between the community on the other hand. Outreach specialists, they very well know what the science says and how challenging that outlook is. um, And they have to break the bad news to people, right? So... This is sort of that first step of, you know, with empathy, bringing this clear diagnosis of what's happening and then working closely with the community to figure out how can we step by step work towards something that is that works for us. And, you know, in many, many uh, communities, what people encounter is, I don't want to change. I don't want to give up anything. I don't want to you know, even think about having to retreat from the coast. It's incredibly difficult uh, to think about such a massive change. There are lots and lots of examples of communities struggling with not being able to come to a joint vision, not being able to even think about a path. but, you know, they they see it as black and white that, you know, we're either (laughs) we're here or we're, you know, we're wiped out, but we're basically not thinking of this as a path. In places like New Jersey, after they were hit by Hurricane Sandy. Um, it wasn't the government telling anybody to leave. It was basically nature having taken away their homes, and people realizing that it makes absolutely no sense to to rebuild in the exact same way in the same place. Whole neighborhoods were moved away, not just one house at a time. I don't know um, if you're familiar with the King Tides Initiative. Oh yeah. Um,
1: but it strikes me that. Um, the King Tides Initiative, which seeks to both have people sort of clearly diagnose their circumstance um, and hopefully feel empowered to address it.
3: Yeah, I think the King Tides Initiative is a great example of people coming to own the reality, coming to own the diagnosis, if you will. You know, if if it's a curve that a, a scientist puts in front of them, that's very abstract. That's very hard to sort of. Come to grips with, and but when people are out there and are taking pictures of you know what it might look like or what it does look uh, already look like um, with much higher uh, ocean levels, then people come to really viscerally grasp what the condition is that they're facing and that there really isn't. A lot of negotiating with the ocean. I think it still needs very careful and and skilled facilitation of the process of figuring out what is the vision of a worthwhile outcome and how do we get there.
1: That was super interesting. And now you're going to go talk with Violet. Tell us about Violet.
0: Yeah, Violet Saena is with Actera, which is a group down on the San Francisco Peninsula. She's super cool. She comes from Samoa. And yeah, it's an amazing story about how she journeyed from that small island with a climate leader there and then came to East Palo Alto. I start by asking Violet kind of what her job entails day to day.
4: I serve the communities in East Palo Alto, Haven of Menlo Park.
0: So it just happens that the the low-income minority communities in Palo Alto all live in the areas that would be most at risk because of sea level rise?
4: East Palo Alto is a different city, and, you know, the other side of 101 where most of the families are under-resourced, um, low-income. And it's not just the income level as well. It's also the resources and the services available to those families. Most of these families, um, you know, they're trying to survive. They're trying to put a roof on, you know, keep the roof over their heads. There's a lot of gentrification. The housing costs has gone up. And so all of that um, really makes the community vulnerable more to um, threats from climate climate change and sea level rise.
0: So talking of sea level rise and threats, you come from a small island nation in the Pacific.
4: Yes, so I'm originally from Samoa I was born and raised um, and before I migrated to the United States in 2005, I was actually the first climate change um, professional Um, I worked for the government I assisted in developing uh, climate change programs to address the issue of sea level rise as well back in Samoa. We were able to um, not only develop programs, increase awareness of our community, because at the time, you know, Samoa was hit by uh, frequent cyclones, which was not the case before. Like, for example, myself, my own lived experience. The first time I experienced a cyclone was in 1990. I was born in 1975. My second cyclone, 1991. Before I left Samoa, I experienced like almost eight or ten cyclones in my lifetime. So with that frequency and the changing in the weather patterns and the physical inundation of coastal lands, we saw a great need of uh, to do this kind of work. And so before I left, you know, I helped establish a lot of the foundation to address adaptation priorities.
0: And are those similar to the programs that you're developing in P- in East Palo Alto or they is it different in an island context than it is on the peninsula in San Francisco Bay?
4: Well, there are a lot of similarities. I spend a lot of time going out to the community, um, talking to the community about vulnerabilities, documenting their vulnerabilities and their experience. And the similarities I found here compared to the islands is that there are people who are vulnerable to climate change and sea level rise. They are adapting as well because of the changes. But at the same time, um, they don't understand the, the real risk, the threats, um, the inundation, the sea level rise rates, what the scientists are telling us. Because there are no programs to connect the science, the policies to the community. The community are doing their own thing. They are facing a lot of stresses and also a lot of uncertainties. They only talk about the existing threats, what they faced, um, which was there was an increase, um, increase in frequency of um, flooding events in East Palo Alto. And that's something that they connect, they connect flooding to the changing weather. But if you ask them, what are your understanding of sea level rise? There was a lot of need to address that. We are actually addressing those needs because in the past years, um, the more we talk to the community, we hear them. They want to be educated. I mean, at that time, most of the information they receive is on the TV, on the news. But it's really about the community. There's not a lot of information available. So that's what we're trying to do in the community.
0: I mean, it's incredible how sea level rise is suddenly becoming an issue in California. I think people are very focused on wildfires and other aspects and much less so sea level rise. When you talk to communities, what their reaction is and, and how you're preparing them for it.
4: So when I'm talking about sea level rise, right? And if I'm saying, you know, this year, it's gonna be three feet of sea level, which means this part of East Palo Alto is going to be inundated. um, It's very hard for them to grasp that. When then I bring up, okay, how many homeowners that are in the room, how many of you are paying flood insurance? And then you started hearing, I don't know why I'm paying flood insurance so far away from the the bay. You know, then those issues come up And then, you know, I would put on the, you know, what the flood insurance map look like. This is why, because you are vulnerable, you're in the hazard zone and you have to pay that or else if something happens, like in the past, you will not be protected.
0: So when you talk to communities about flood insurance, when you ask that question, kind of what's the follow up?
4: Yeah um so they they do they do understand the reasons why because also if we, when we talk about the flooding in the past in East Palo Alto a lot of uh, community members who don't own homes, but they were impacted in ways that the cars were destroyed, so they weren't able to get to work. There's a lot of trickle down impact of events like this that we can, um, you know, that we can talk about. And so, doing this kind of work, it's really helpful to, to really discuss like they. Discuss the memories of events how it impacted their health how mold started coming you know taking over the homes after a flood they didn't understand how dangerous that is it's a lot more than just the physical impact of sea level rise and and the extreme events
0: violet maybe tell us about your community climate team
4: I work very closely with Anamatangi Polynesian Voices and this is a community-based organization in East Palo Alto um, and they work with the, the Pacific Island community. We have members from churches. We have members from key community leaders who are very active in the community. And we also have the city, the city support. We have our vice mayor, um, who's also part of this climate change community team. So a lot of the work that I do, That's part of the project. I take it back to the climate change community team. They actually tell me what to do. For example, our climate change community survey was developed and designed by Stanford, but they were guided by the climate change community team. Every question in that survey was approved and agreed for by the community team.
0: In the survey, what kind of of questions do you ask?
4: That first meeting in March was that it was evident that they say, well, we don't really know where the community is with climate change and sea level rise. What is their level of understanding? What is their level of concern? We also wanted to use the opportunity to provide some information about climate change and sea level rise in Ispao Otsu. And so that's what we did uh, for the survey. And
0: And did you go door to door?
4: yes. We did. Um, we did go door-to-door. There was also an online opportunity. And the community team also wanted us to do a lot of outreaching, to train the youth to do the survey. Um, there was a lot a lot of ask. We actually did two-day training for all the, um, the youth um, that were, you know, that wanted to participate. But it was very hard. At the end, we... We got 300, almost 350 surveys completed. And so we're analyzing that data right now.
0: <laughs> There's so much top-down on climate change yeah. that most communities are forgotten. And to actually engage and sit down with people and find out what their concerns are takes time and work. So
4: It, it does. It takes a lot of time um, and also takes a lot of patience. Sometimes it's very hard to, you know, to bring everyone to a consensus like where we want to go. Um, But what we're fortunate is that everyone, each individual that's part of this team are passionate about protecting the community from sea level rising climate change. Each person understands the need for education, making sure that the community are aware of these issues. With my experience, I've seen um, the work I've done in Samoa, I've seen families losing their land. And to lose land in an island, it's like losing your identity. I've seen that the devastations. I've seen how families' homes were destroyed during cyclones and had no money to rebuild. I think that's where a lot of my passion comes from. Before, we just worked on mitigating greenhouse gases through our energy efficiency program. But to actually work on developing adaptation and working with the community, it's not just a, a month's work. This is years building, building trust, because that's what we did in East. Also, we had to build the community we had to gain the community trust to allow us to do more and and that's what's happening i mean that's what i'm grateful for
0: what things were you surprised by violet in the in the responses since you didn't really know what you'd get from this survey or when you knocked on people's doors
4: like where are we going to go Um, if a flood hits? How many exits are there? Where are the safest paths? Do we have places to move to if things happen? So that's when they start talking about those issues and they say, we need a plan. Um, I was one time I was talking about, we were talking about sea level rise and this lady put up her hand and said, so should we start thinking about buying boats instead of cars? (laughs) I, I never thought of that, right? There are a lot of local solutions that people are already doing. And one thing, one one of them that really stands out to me is that um, East Palo Alto have a very strong network of families and community that supports each other. And I think that's one big plus that the network, the the community network, the family network is very strong. And I think that's... Their resiliency, and by building their capacity to organize around climate change and sea level rise, they're come up with solutions—very low-cost solutions—that can help them be more, more and more resilient to you know any risk from climate change and sea level rise in the future. One of the strategies that came up from the flooding issue in East Palo Alto is, you know, by Maybe building a green belt within the city where we can encourage families in the neighborhood to um, build uh, rain gardens rain gardens to hold the water to you know keep it and then slowly um, let the water go. It not only help um, you know not only help with flooding, it can help um, protect the bay by reducing, um, you know, stormwater pollution, things like that. We can plant fruit trees. We can address food security issues. We can improve the living environment. At the same time, how can we help, um, you know, employ the youth from East Palo Alto? We can build the capacity to be the people that will install these rain gardens. So you're looking at um, not only the environmental benefits, economic benefits to the, the youth or the the residents of East Palo Alto, creating jobs. Th- those are the kind of projects that we're talking about that addresses all the, the issues that have been raised.
0: So for you, Violet, sea level rising climate is a way of helping build community. It's not just something to be scared of or something to measure or a wall to build. It's really about how to engage learning and and resiliency through community building.
4: Yes, it's really that. I mean, yes, um, climate change is happening, right? It's already happening. What's happening now to address climate change, address sea level rights, it's all about building the community, organizing the community to plan and be prepared. Um, and I think it's that's very important to be prepared. Um, and especially if you are working in a community that are under-resourced, climate change impacts people differently. And the, the less resource you are, the more disadvantaged you are. How can we address that now so that when things happen, when disaster happens, and we can be a little bit better than before.
0: You seem like a very hopeful person. So when you go home at night and think about your day's work with the community, like, can you sleep well?
4: (laughs) Not really. (laughs) I mean, it's a lot of work, right? Uh, It's a lot of work, to be honest. Um, And uh, there are times I I stay up. (laughs) I stay up thinking about what to do next. I'm very committed. Um, to the work that I do. When once I'm passionate about something, I'm committed. I see myself um, doing this kind of work with community, building one community at a time. Um, the work we have done with East Palo Alto has moved forward a lot. Um, we have another community, um, No Fair Oaks, they've reached out. And I know there are many other communities in the Bay Area that, that need this kind of assistance, um, kind of push as well, you know. All I'm doing is bringing people together. It's empowering and sometimes they just need a new connection to elevate the work that they are doing.
0: Thank you so much for Jennifer Cult, who's the director of Humboldt Baykeeper, Suzanne Moser, a climate change adaptation expert, and Violet Saena, who is the climate resilient communities director with Actera. And of course, thank you to Sarah. Sarah, it's been really fun doing the episode with you. What What are the big takeaways from this episode?
1: Well, I think what we heard is that it's a real challenge to get people to accept and plan for something that is both so immense and drastic in scale, but that's also occurring relatively slowly and unevenly.
0: So it is kind of slow, but at the same time, Sarah, like, I don't know, in Pacifica the the high tides from King tides were super high. And I, I kind of feel like it's happening quicker in some ways, but we're not catching up to that reality.
1: It's definitely happening quicker. And you know, the people we talk to today are trying to get their communities and their leaders to to think about and do something about it now because the longer we wait. Uh, the fewer options will be on the table and the less people will get to have a voice in what happens to their coastal and shoreline communities.
0: I thought it was really cool how Violet was talking at the end about the multiple benefits, like if you build a rain garden, you also get fruit trees, you get empowerment with the local youth.
1: Yeah, that's right. Those solutions take time to to plan and to develop, but there are amazing living shoreline opportunities. Um, we can think about the ways in planting eelgrass and Aquaculture can help make our shoreline more resilient. Um, and anybody can participate in this in the coming weeks by participating in the King Tides Initiative and heading out to your coast or Bay Area. When? January 10th through the 12th and February 8th through the 9th, 2020. The dates um, change every year. So check your King Tides forecast for future opportunities. And is that
0: just in California or is that around the world?
1: Um, there are King Tides efforts happening around the world.
0: Thank you so much, Sarah. Uh, I really, really appreciate everything that you've done. And while I'm at it, thank you for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spade, executive producer David Kahn. And Sarah, what do you want to be called?
1: Um, I'd like to be the creative director. I've been uh, trying to work my way in for a while. and And yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: And from creative director, Sarah Amenzada, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, I hope you stayed high and dry during this king tide. <laughs>